You're listening to the Late Registration Podcast, a podcast that inspires teachers, administrators, and parents to grow in their knowledge, skills, and abilities while working towards creating more accessible and equitable educational spaces. I'm your hosts, Ashley and Michelle, we're educators, moms, and SEL fanatics, and we are obsessed with empowering the next generation of leaders. Join us as we change the narrative on misbehavior and discuss all things education, including building connections, restorative practices, behavior, and social-emotional learning. Are you ready? Let's go. Welcome. We are the Late Registration Podcast. I'm Ashley. And I'm Michelle. And today we have Heather Hennessy here with us, and she is the president of the Texas Association of Administrators and Supervisors of Programs for Young Children. I had to practice all of that. So Heather, thank you for joining us this morning. Um, Can you tell us a little about you and your background and how um, you became the president of the TAASPYC? Excellent. Yes, I sure can. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, So we call it the organization TASPIC for short. Um, and I will tell you that it is a mouthful. And um, the organization was founded about 35 years ago by a group mm-hmm. of um, administrators and supervisors of programs for young children in the state of Texas. And that's where this big mouthful of a name came. And we talk about it all the time, like, should we change it? Should we not? But there's a long history of, of the organization and of being called TASPIC. So TASPIC is what we say. Um, and, um, so I'll start a little bit about TASPIC and then I'll tell you how I came to be part of it. So, like I said, um, I'm not exactly sure the year that it was formed, but I'm going to tell you it was about 35 years ago. And the idea is that it is a group of, um, administrators, uh, from campus to district to state level that work, um, predominantly in early childhood. And so what we found was that there's lots of organizations and there's lots of organizations for leaders, but not specifically tied just to the early learning world. And so that's how it, it came to be. And um, and I came on um, probably about six years ago um, when I was working with um, a school district as an instructional coach in early learning. And I went to the my first symposium and just loved that all of the learning specifically was related to early childhood and then specifically rated uh, related to leadership in early childhood. So not necessarily what teachers need to do in the classroom, but what do administrators and supervisors and leaders need to do to support those teachers and those families. Um, And so I came on as just a board member and then um, I spent two years as the president elect. And then this is my second year as the president. And um, we took a little bit of a hit during COVID in just as everybody did, you know, schedules got crazy and um, we weren't able to meet in person. And so we're, we're in the process of rebuilding. We um, did a visioning session um, in December of 2022. So just a year ago, no, 21, sorry. 2021, um, and came up with a new vision statement and a new mission statement for TASPIC. And so um, I'll just go ahead and read you our vision. So our vision is that TASPIC is the leading professional organization that provides high quality resources for early childhood advocates to support and empower our youngest scholars and their families. 
And so we really tried to capture in there um, the idea that we um, are a professional organization. Um, we are a nonprofit, and our goal is really to advocate for the early childhood world. Um, and we do that um, through our mission statement, which is um, helping to grow and support early childhood leaders in developing successful programs that sets the foundation for young scholars. Um, and we really work with research-based practices and opportunities to learn and networking with professionals. So it's a little bit of a mouthful, um, but really our, our goal is to, um, to support just specifically in that early childhood wor world um, and how leaders support the families and the teachers and, and everyone that really um, touches these young little people. That's awesome. Um, that I mean, yeah. I just think about too the the fact that you're administrators of early childhood programs because I didn't realize until probably recently how much of a division even early childhood programs that are within the traditional elementary setting there's quite a big divide between what those learners do versus the rest of the school and kind of how to navigate all of that is probably very difficult. You're, you're exactly right. Um, you know, early childhood is, is, a, is a different world. It's a play-based world. Um, it is uh, not, there's lots of data to collect, but it isn't necessarily data that we collect in MAP scores or STAR scores or, you know, uh, academic math and literacy. A lot of it is around the social-emotional learning, the school readiness learning. And so, it, it, it is a different world to navigate for school leaders um, in just understanding what is going on in those classrooms. Like, is this learning? It, this seems, you know, like this seems like chaos or, or lots of administrators will say to us, well, they're just playing and understanding like just playing is exactly what we want to do is, is a challenge. Um, and it's especially a challenge in the world today of accountability and, you know, we look at accountability and we say, these kids need to be doing this because if they're doing this now, then they're going to do this and they're going to do this. And so how you um, take accountability from the third grade up and translate that into what you're doing in pre-K is, is, a, is, a yeah. is a hard learning situation. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. that's. That's really interesting. I can remember when um, the district that I worked for started offering, um, you know, district-wide pre-K and just from like a classroom management perspective, you know, it's the expectations were so much different just because of the level of the learners and there were just so many things to think about. I remember um, there was one session where, you know, it's, it's pretty common, I think, in most public schools that... Um, especially the younger grades, that when kids line up to like go to recess or the lunchroom, they put their hands behind their back. Um, and there was a worker, um, a pre-K teacher, and she's like, you know, some of our pre-K kids just even physically aren't coordinated enough and have enough balance to do that. And it was like, oh my gosh, I never thought about that before. <laughs> it never even crossed my mind. No, you're exactly right. Like you often hear teachers like, you know, um, uh, ducktails and bubbles. Yes. Right? And so if you think about a, a three-year-old or a four-year-old who's still developing that core body strength and still trying to figure out where their body is in space, and now you're going to say to them, put your hands behind your back and hold your breath, 
and try to walk down the hall. It's <laughs> It's it's not a realistic expectation. No, it sounds insane when you even say it that way. Yeah. Right, and and really, like if I had my dream, it would really not be a realistic expectation before second grade. Um, we we don't have children who come to us these days with the core body strength that we used to. Um, without aging myself, I will say that like when we were little, um, we went to the playground. We um, we walked on balance beams. We got on those things that spun. Um, we used swings, things that now are sort of classified as dangerous on playgrounds and, and are taken away. Um, you know, our, our mothers believed in tummy time. We weren't as nervous about that. And so when a baby, starting from the very, very, very beginning of its life, lays on its tummy, it learns to lift its head. And the motion, and this is a little bit complicated to explain, but the motion of turning their head to the side is it activates all these core strength muscles. And so as the baby learns to turn its head and roll over, it develops all of this core strength. And then that leads into crawling and the bilateral crawling. And when children don't have the opportunity on their tummies to, to crawl, to learn to roll over, to explore the ground, we miss all of those precursor skills to core development. And, um, and in today's day and age, where so many times we have uh, both parents working, babies go from their crib to their car seat to the daycare that is doing its very, very best to provide those opportunities back to the car seat, maybe to the shopping cart, to the high chair, and then to bed. And that isn't any knock on parenting. It's just the realization of where we are today. And so when kids come at three and four years old and they haven't had that opportunity to develop their core strength, this is why we see them falling out of chairs. Mm -hmm. This is why we see them not being able to sit still. This is why we see them not being able to hold a pencil in their correct grip, because you have to have all of that core before you can develop any of this in your arms and any of this in your hands. And so you're exactly right, Michelle, the expectations of what we should be seeing three and four-year-olds do in the classroom is those things. Are they learning to sit? Are they learning fine motor? Not holding a pencil, but can they pull little beads out of pieces of clay? Can they string beads? Can they do puzzles? Because we're not ready to hold a pencil or cut with scissors until we can actually keep ourselves upright on the chair, <laughs> stabilize yeah. the paper with our hand. And so for people who don't have a background in early childhood, when you walk into a classroom and you're thinking, my gosh, they're on the floor, they're stringing beads, their handwriting looks terrible, um, they're loud, you know, your, your inclination is to say to the teacher, put them in chairs, where's their worksheets, why aren't they holding the pencil the right way, make them be quiet in the line, and, and that isn't what is developmentally best for kids. Wow. Yeah, I love that line. That's not what's developmentally best for kids. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, that's all we needed to know. Like that just kind of sums it all up. Like, okay, mm -hmm. I wish we could use that line in every grade <laughs> for some expectations. Well, you know, and, and really like, again, districts often will say, you know, early childhood is, is just your pre-K year. Um, but we also know that lots of children come to kindergarten not experiencing mm -hmm. pre-K. 
Yeah. And so, um, so if they didn't have that benefit and if they didn't have that benefit of high quality care prior to coming to pre-K or kinder, we're, we're in the same boat. Yeah. We're now just kindergartners or really in the state of Texas, it's not required to come to school until you're in first grade. First grade. Right. Right. So now we're in that boat and we're at, you know, we're six years old and that star test is looming. Right. And yes, I, it is. I, you know, and so, um, so, you know, so, so, so TASPIC, you know, really works to help administrators, school leaders. We have lots of um, district leaders that come, um, you know, that are part of our group. And, and we, we host an annual symposium and that's really our, our biggest, our biggest push and our biggest learning is once a year, we get everybody together um, for two days of learning all around early childhood, early childhood practices. Um, and again, ways that leaders can support teachers and students and families within their buildings or within their districts. Wow. So it sounds like you're an advocacy group. Mm-hmm. You are a professional group, you're a mm-hmm. resource group. Do you have a national affiliate or is we this? Don't, no, just in Texas, we don't have a national affiliate. Um, and yeah, we're, we're exactly that. We're an advocacy. We're a professional. Um, we put out a weekly newsletter that just has a few little, um, you know, articles around what's going on um, within the world of early childhood. Um, we offer an opportunity for districts or for buildings that are doing something really special to share that. Um, and then we're a networking too, because, you know, what we do know is that when professionals get together and share ideas, um, that collective thinking, that collaboration is very, very powerful. And so we're real excited this year for our symposium. We're getting to bring back our site visit. We we take the second day of learning um, in, historically and go to um, an early child, childhood campus so we can see some of the things that um, other districts are doing. And so this year we're real excited because of COVID, we haven't been able to do it the past two years. Um, but this year we're, we're real excited that we're going to get to go highlight a campus that is doing really great things for kids. Yeah, wow, that's really neat. That is really neat. That mm-hmm. that sounds really beneficial. And yeah, that's yeah. And so all these administrators from around the state of Texas are mm-hmm. are touching down here in the DFW area for this mm-hmm. symposium. Mm-hmm. So wow, yeah. that, that's really awesome. Yeah. yeah. That'll be really so cool. let's see. So then you asked me how did I what was my background? And so um I um my dad was in the military growing up, so I'll start there. And we moved every two years when I was when I was a child. Um, and every two years meant there was a new school and a new set of teachers and friends and everything to navigate. And so, one of the things that I learned from that was really the power of relationships and the power mm-hmm. of needing to get someplace and build a relationship pretty quick. Um, we always knew within two years we would be leaving and going somewhere else. And so um, so people always said, oh, was that so hard? And it wasn't hard because we knew it, you know, like it was you'd get there. And, and a lot of times we lived on naval bases. And so most of the kids had the same life experience. Right. Um, so, you know, that idea of, of building relationships in school was always um, you know, very important to my family. There was just no question you were going to do well in school. Um, you were going to respect your teachers, you know, you were going to follow the rules. That was just the way we grew up. Um, and then when I, um, when I went to college, I, um, my dad was in undersea surveillance and we grew up during the cold war and, 
um, you know, the, the Soviets were our enemies. And mm-hmm. um, I studied uh, Russian and post-Soviet studies as, as my uh, degree. And I was going to go change the world. And, um, and I, did, I didn't change the world, but I did work in some post-Soviet studies until I had children. And then I had children. And I stayed home until my youngest went to kindergarten. And when she went to kindergarten, I said to my husband, you know, I think I'm going to go substitute at the, the kid's school. Like, it's easy. It's down the street. You know, I'll just work, you know, whenever I want to. Uh-huh. And um, within about three or four days of substituting, I worked in a special ed classroom. And that turned into, will you come tomorrow? Will you come tomorrow? <laughs> will you take on a long-term sub job? <laughs> course, you know, like I had fallen in love, did not know that I was meant to be a special ed teacher, did not know that I was meant to do that. Um, but I, I started that in um, like that long-term job in, in January. And then in May, the principal called me and said, will you come back as a teaching assistant? You know, I don't have, a, you know, I didn't have a teaching certification or a degree. And I thought, of course, like how, how am I not going to come back to these kids? So I worked as a teaching assistant, um, and got my alternative certification and then got hired by the campus as a special ed teacher. And I thought this is the greatest thing ever. My kids are right here. I'll work right here. And then within a few months of that, um, they lost the allocation. And so I Ah. had to, um, you know, find myself another, another campus. And I went to an early childhood school and I thought, this is terrible. I, I don't, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if I can do this. You know, this is not what my plan was, you know, and lo and behold, I got there and God said, like, this is exactly what you should be doing. This is exactly where you need to be with three and four year olds with disabilities and setting, you know, that foundation, the, mm-hmm. the, the right start for them. And so I just, I fell in love with early childhood. I fell in love with special education for early childhood um, and, and then, you know, I, I, I think I'm my father's daughter. And so, you know, became a team leader and, um, decided I would get my, um, my master's and my administrative certification. And so I, I did that. And in the district that I was in, they didn't have assistant principals in the early childhood buildings. And so in order to continue my administrative career, I had to leave the early childhood world. And so I worked in an elementary building, which again, I thought this is the worst thing I've ever done. I, 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 I cannot believe I'm doing this. I, I don't want, you know, but I did it. And again, it turned out to be the greatest thing I've ever done and just wonderful experience. Um, learned that I could love fifth graders as much as I could love four-year-olds. And, um, and so it was just, you know, it's just, I think opportunities that God puts in your path all of the time. And you just say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this now. And then um, this summer, uh, another opportunity came. And so now I'm um, actually a, working another school district as um, it, directly in um, early learning. And so it's been a really wonderful opportunity. And, and I am one of those people when I talk about administrators trying to understand the early childhood world. I've seen that. Um, I've seen that when you go to an elementary campus that, and you have pre-K, that there's often not an understanding around that world. Mm-hmm. Um, and now at a district level, um, I can see it even even larger. And so where I used to think I was, you know, going to change the world and bring democracy to the Soviet Union, um, you know, now <laughs> I think, you know, I'm just going to change like one or two people's worlds at a time. And uh, and so far it's been, it's been really a great little journey. 
It's definitely trickled. I mean, I know that you say it's not changing the world, but I think it's changed quite a few of us just are thinking around it. So I'm very thankful that our paths cross um, because she was, for those listeners who don't know, Heather was one of the assistant principals, the assistant principal at the time at my children's elementary school. Um, And so I learned a lot just from you and then just, just being able to kind of see early childhood for what it is, you know, it is, Mm -hmm. it is very different, but, but the, you know, the advantages of having it in an elementary school as well, you know, the the advantages and the disadvantages. And so I guess that kind of leads me to my next question is what do you see as being the biggest barrier to providing high quality early childhood programs? And do you have any thoughts about how to remedy or remove those barriers? I'm sure you do, but. (laughs) You know, I, I, I think, I think, I mean, a couple of the barriers are, you know, that it's not universally offered. And so different states have different um, regulations on how they offer pre-K programs. And there are several states that that do offer it universally. In the state of Texas, it's not universal pre-K. So that means that you have to qualify under certain conditions, um, special education, um, second language learner, Uh um, if you have, uh, if you're military or foster care, or then uh, economically disadvantaged. And so it, it is a program that is, is more widely seen now in Texas. And then a few years ago, we did add that uh, it needed to move from a half day to a full day. And so there are you know, strides being in made in that, but there's still barriers. Often districts don't um, provide transportation for pre-K students. Um, sometimes dismissal times are different. Um, Parents often worry, you know, do I take my baby and send them to this big school? And so, you know, some of those things are 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 barriers. Um, the other barrier is is the teacher pipeline right now. And so, you you know, and we see that all across in every state in the nation. Um, but it is hard to recruit teachers. You know, mm-hmm. it's hard to get teachers to stay. Um, outside of the school system, the, um, the pay rate for teachers um, in early childhood world in, in private daycares is just appalling. Yes. Um, I was reading, I'll, I'll have to look it up, but they, a, a teacher, a pre-K or a early childhood care worker makes on average, it says $13.22 an hour. And an animal caretaker makes $13.81. Wow. And yeah. so here we are where we know that the most brain development happens really before you're five years old. And we are struggling to put qualified people in there. And if you are qualified, who's going to work for $13.22, right. Right. right? And so the, the whole system really needs to be looked at differently in how do we how do we elevate the stature of a, of a child care worker? Um, again, historically, you know, that is a, a position that isn't really elevated in the, in the profession. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how do we elevate the pay? And then how would they even afford to go to school to get more degrees mm-hmm. or to be certified when the outcome is that you're only going to make $13 an hour. And so the, um, the Hunt Institute, which is out of North Carolina, um, is doing a lot of work with policy issue, looking at policy around that. Um, but then on top of that, COVID really t- took a hit and lots of 
daycare centers are closed now because of COVID. You know, mm-hmm. parents didn't send their children, couldn't send their children. And so it's really a big, um, you know, I, so I think, I mean, I think teacher pipeline, both in school systems and out of school systems is, is a real struggle. And, um, and then again, what we're talking about here, this idea behind what is developmentally appropriate um, and what, what do we need to see in a high quality program is not always understood by all of those people that are in charge of making those decisions. Yeah. Boy, isn't that the truth? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he said, yeah, that sounds pretty. Every level. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, and I think, you know, like we, we think about, you know, what COVID has done, you know, in every level of education. Right. And so some of our four-year-olds now, you know, have grown up only through the COVID lifetime. And so mm-hmm. when you were little and you, and you didn't have the opportunity for socialization with anyone outside of your family or your mm-hmm. world was seen through a mask, you know, or the way you heard words through a mask, you know, we, we're seeing um, a, a big difference in the students that are coming to us now at, at four years old, three and four years old, just as we are the students, you know, that missed all of that learning. And so I think really slowing down and, and, you know, thinking, okay, what is development appropriate and how do we back up to make sure that we're meeting that child where he or she is, mm-hmm. not where we believe they should be. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think too, I mean, just, and, you know, I, I always joke that I'm the grandma between us because I'm, I've got about a decade on Ashley and, you know, when I, was in kindergarten. It was half a day. It was, there was a nap in there and snack and our big goal for the year. And I re, I still remember this to this day. I had the best kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Schultz. And I can remember our goal was to learn how to count to a hundred. And I thought, Oh, there's no way I'm going to learn that. Like that <laughs> is this huge goal. And you can go into kindergarten or kindergarten classrooms now and kids that are five and six are doing simple equations. They are writing full sentences with punctuation. I mean, just the stakes are so much higher. And so I think too, a barrier can be, and I we see this a lot in public education is, especially if this is the a, a person's first child, they may not realize how important that early education is for their child to be able to feel confident and successful in a kindergarten class. Cause if you're, you know, if you were at home watching SpongeBob because you were lucky enough to have a parent that stayed at home and then you go into a kindergarten classroom, it's, you know, it's like going from peewee to the major leagues overnight. Right. Right. And so what are some things that as a parent, that like we can make sure that we do with our kids, like maybe, you know, this is our first kiddo and we're don't have any idea of how much education has changed, especially since COVID. What are some things that we can do? And then what are some things that we should look for when we're checking out early childhood programs? Mm-hmm. I think that um, like number one thing I would say is to limit your screen time. Really watch how much screen time you're offering to your, your young learner. And, and that's, you know, really from the very beginning until, you know, it, 
I'm going to tell you, even through when they're in 12th grade, you know, yeah. <laughs> you've got yeah. to monitor that, right? <laughs> you, you've got to monitor that. Um, but limiting the screen time, um, reading books, you know, make sure that you have paper books available and that you read to your children, um, talking to your children. You know, they, they, you've, we've all heard, you know, the, the million word gap and when, you know, children don't have that vocabulary when they come into school, how do you make sure that you're, you're talking to them and having conversations? Um, I would buy a, a set of wooden blocks. You know, if you're listening and you have a two-year-old or a three-year-old and you don't have a set of wooden blocks at home, buy a set of wooden blocks and and get on the floor and teach them to, to build with those blocks and then have conversations around that. Um, singing, nursery rhymes, anything that you can do to help build the phonological awareness at this age is absolutely key. So little songs that we used to sing, you know, Humpty Dumpty and the wheels on the bus. Um, very, very simple things that we have gotten away from. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and again, a lot of it is, you know, your mom is at home, dad is at home, they're working. They they need the, you know, the little person to be quiet. And mm -hmm. iPads are, are wonderful, you know, mechanisms for that. Um, but, you know, they teach instant gratification. Yeah. Um, and so when we come to school and now we don't get things instantly or we have to to share, we, we don't have those, you know, the kids don't have those skills. And, and, and largely that is what is supposed to be taught in third, three and four year old classrooms. And so we as teachers know that. Um, but when you don't come in, you know, with, you know, with a basic foundation, um, you know, often I'll see children in a, the dramatic play center and it'll be set like a kitchen and and they're not playing kitchen. And so, you know, why aren't they playing, you know, let's sit and eat at the table? Well, because often in families, we're not sitting and eating at the table right. any longer. We don't always see somebody cooking in the kitchen and, and pouring tea. And so, you know, I, I teach, I talk to teachers all the time about, you know, well, they say, oh, they, you know, they just make a mess in there when they go play. Well, we, you know, we've got to teach them, you know, so any of those things that, that as a parent, you can, you know, narrate your thinking, you know, okay, let's put, there's four people in our family. How many forks do we need today? Let's get out four. One, two, three, four. You know, just just having those conversations and talking out loud and and reading and singing and playing is what I would say um, as a as a as a parent to do. And then what was the second part of that question? Um, um, what type of things are good to look for in early childhood programs. Yeah. So, so again, I would say that when you go to look at a program, you want to look and say, you know, does this look like a place where my child can play? Does it look warm and inviting? Um, there's a statistic um, that we often use in, in some of our professional development. That is, it takes 400 repetitions for a brain to make a new synapse, Yes. but it only takes 10 to 20 if you do it through play. So anything that we can teach through play, we can do much quicker than if we tried to do it as rote or on a worksheet or um, sitting at a table with pen and paper. And so I would say as you're looking for um, an early childhood program, you're wanting to see play, you're wanting to see are there those um, opportunities to experience um, blocks and, and dramatic play. Um, what people often don't know about dramatic play is it's the, the child's first opportunity to tell a story. 
And so before they're able to read or write, they can act it out. Yeah. And then as a as the child is putting together that sequence of, you know, I'm pretending I'm mommy and you're daddy and I'm going to pour the tea, you can narrate that and then that becomes a story. Um, if you're in the dramatic play area and you put in, you know, some pretend eggs and some blocks and now I can retell the Humpty Dumpty story. I've done that through a play-based piece, but I'm now telling a story and then I could make my own ending to that story through that dramatic play. Um, you know, so, so I would say um, that there's those opportunities that they have an opportunity to go outside. Children, you know, really should have 60 minutes of outdoor time every day. And so when you're looking at that schedule of the day, is there an opportunity to go play outside? Um, you know, and then, um, you know, like, does it, again, does it just feel warm and inviting? Does it feel like it's, you know, like it could be your home? That that would be what I would be looking for. Yeah, those are all really great things. And I think, too, when you talk about, like, the, you know, playing, not knowing how to play kitchen in a play kitchen, when you said that, I've seen that on campuses where, um, you know, they're kind of putting random things in cupboards and they're not... And I think it just goes back to everyone is so busy. I mean, you know, both parents are working. It's rare if a parent is able to stay home. Everything is just so rushed. And you forget that, you know, kids don't get to see those experiences. And so, of course, they're not translating that skill because they haven't gotten to see it. And so that's really interesting. And, 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 and this is how we can help administrators, right, is that when you explain that to, to an administrator and they go in a classroom and, and the food is all over the floor or the children are banging the babies against the wall or, you know, whatever, yes. is, right? Like what is ever happening is that we can help guide that teacher to say, these children need to learn what that place sequence looks like. And so now, again, you know, thinking about development appropriate, can the teacher push in? sit in there or the teaching assistant um, and, and model what that play scenario looks like as opposed to standing back and saying, well, they don't get to play in there because they don't know how. The reason they yes. don't know how is because we haven't taught them. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, so that is, you know, one of the really big things that we, we do through our organization is try to help people, again, who don't have a background in early childhood understand that. Um, Another interesting one is, is the blocks. There's four stages to block play. Um, the first is just exploring. The second is, is picking them up. And so when we see kids that are picking them up and knocking things over, they're only in stage two. The third stage is we start to build structures. And then the fourth is that we then add cars and people and we begin to tell stories. And so when, right, right. So when we know that, and then we see kids playing in the blocks area. Again, if they're just crashing them around, if they're not building structures, if they're knocking over what their friends are building, it's the teacher's role to go in and say, oh, hey, you know, let's think about, can we build this tall? Can we build it long? How do we do that? And then once we have a mastery of that, then we can move on to, okay, can we build a structure? Once we have a mastery of that, we can add you know, the three little pigs and the big bad wolf, and we can build those houses or we can put cars in. But again, when, when teachers don't understand that and blocks becomes a place that 
you know, well, we can't be there because they just make a mess. It's because we haven't taught. And so really trying to help people gain an awareness of, of all of those stages and all of those things are things that, that children need to be taught. Yeah. So the next question we have is what is a component of early childhood education or a feature or even a program that you have seen work well and you would like to see replicated in all early learning, uh, early childhood learning environments? I mean, I think it's just that idea that we've been talking about play. It's, it's, are we putting play into the day and how are we doing that intentionally? Um, building language, you know, how are we building language and vocabulary? Um, Texas has what we call the pre-K guidelines. And so they are essentially, um, the precursor to kindergarten teaks or standards. And so, you know, are, are we looking at those pre-kindergarten guidelines and really providing experiences that do develop social emotional learning, that develop the vocabulary, that develop, um, you know, the math skills that we need or that children need to be able to re be ready to go on to the next, to the next grade? Um, and are we providing all of those opportunities, you know, with intentional play-based opportunities. Yeah, that's so interesting. I would think too, that it would be like just coming from an elementary lens. I would think as a kindergarten teacher, those things that you were saying about the stages of block play and, you know, that when you see play centers that, um, you know, aren't being utilized as a that play center, I would think that it would be beneficial for the kindergarten teacher to also know those details. And, and you know, our kindergarten teachers, do, do they have that background? Or is that another gap that... I mean, I think I think it all again largely depends on your district or your administrator um, on what they are understanding around around play. You know, there are kindergarten buildings that I've been in where children still get to mm -hmm. have time in, you know, in, in centers, you know, essentially where they would have a blocks or a engineering center and a dramatic play center. Um, you know, um, and I've seen some campuses yeah. do that really, really well and some not. Just really, again, I think you're right, depending on the capacity of the teacher and um, and the willingness of the administrators to to see that five-year-old and six-year-old children yeah. still can learn through play. So, yeah, you know, so I, I think I think it just really depends on, on where you are. I, if I was thinking about a kindergarten opportunity, I would first, you know, I would be looking for, is it play-based? You know, how many worksheets am I seeing in that kindergarten yeah. classroom? I wouldn't want to see very many. You know, what can you take and, and take from a, a worksheet and turn into a hands-on experience? Um, but again, I, I think that not only is that a gap in kinder, like it's a gap also in, in early learning classrooms. And a lot of it goes, you know, back again to not understanding a lot of those developmentally appropriate practices. And then also pressure from, from you know, people above of what mm -hmm. does a quiet classroom look like or what does learning look like in their minds. Yeah, those kind of pre preconceived notions of traditional constructs in a classroom and what it should look like. Definitely. Yeah. What are ways that we can support early childhood or pre-K for all? How can the community at large get involved? 
Um, you know, I, I don't, that's a hard question. I think that, you know, just watching, you know, if, if there's votes on ballots around early learning and uh, mm -hmm. expansion programs, expansion of buildings, um, you know, with curriculum adoptions being, you know, paying attention to, you know, when there is a new adoption in your district, um, you know, and then, and then we need teachers. And so, um, really trying to, I would love to elevate the experience of an early learning professional to say like, these are our most precious gifts that anybody has, right? Like you're giving your child, you know, who, who is not at a place that they can always come home and tell you what happened during the day to another person. Like that's a big deal. And so the idea that, that early learning and professionals and educators are valuable um, that it's that it is a valued profession that it should be held in as high regard as you know being any other teacher you know because because these are very important parts of little people's lives and and we trust these people to really take care of them yeah absolutely I love that well I, thank you so much for this information about pre-K, early learning, early childhood learning, whatever it's called in the wide um, realm of early early childhood learning. Um, but we do want to take some time just to get a little bit more insight into you. Um, I know we learned <laughs> mostly about you as a professional and your journey into the early childhood world, um, but we do have some questions for you, some kind of ending questions. And the first one is, um, if you could have dinner with anyone in the world, and this person can be alive or deceased, who would it be and why? Well, not to get emotional, but it would be with my mother who um, passed away um, in 2014. Um, far too young and too wonderful, but what she taught us about grace and gratitude and faith. Um, I would love to, to be able to, to, to learn more. She had breast cancer for 25 years, was a survivor, and it eventually had metastasized um, wow. into, her, um, into her brain and into her spinal cord. And she lived every day with an absolute faith that things were going to work out the way they were going to. Um, spent her last few years, you know, completing everything on her bucket list that she could get to. Um, she and my father did that together. And as a military child, you know, what wow. she taught us about family and being together and the value of that, um, you know, I, 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 I miss every day and I wish I had more of it. Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. What a a great way to remember yeah. her legacy and to pass yeah, you know when she when she passed away we were we were all of course sad, but because she was prepared for it and had prepared us for it, it was something that we all knew was going to happen, and it was just a really lovely memorial and we and we all remember her in such a way because she just took care of it in such a graceful faithful manner. Wow. I know. I hope, I, I, I hope we all are. I hope we all are. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. Well, our final ending question is one that I like to ask. If money was no object and you would have lots of experience because you traveled so often as a kid, especially, where would you take a dream vacation and why? Well, this is going to sound sort of funny, but um, I, uh, my husband and I have um, been trying to visit all of the 85 state parks in Texas. And wow, um, we got married just this past March, so almost a year ago. And he is a, uh, a Boy Scout and a camper. And I had never camped in my entire life. I'd never slept in a tent. I never thought I ever would. My, vaca- my dream vacations at that point would have been like to go to the beach somewhere and, and just sit with a nice drink and, and the sun. Um, and he's taught me how to camp. Um, now, mostly he does the work and I sit in my chair and, <laughs> and have a wonderful time and enjoy it. Enjoy the but we have seen so many wonderful parts of Texas. We've seen 77 of them. So actually there's 88 because we have 11 to go. So we have seen 77 wow. different state parks in Texas, and every single one of them offers something wonderful and unique. And um, and so right now, like my dream is that we've got to get this finished, um, and we've got some ones in very far corners of the state that we have to hit, which you know takes a little bit more time. Um, but really, just um, anything that has to do with being out in nature and quiet and disconnected is is what I long for. Yeah, that's really neat. Well, I hope it doesn't take you very long to get those last 11 state parks. I, I think, yeah, thank you. I think we, we're, we're, you know, I think we probably have two two years and we'll be done. Yeah. Yeah, that's really yeah. neat. What a great goal, too. A fun, such a fun goal yeah. as a couple and, I mean, to Texas do that. Texas is just amazing. You know? Just, like, amazing some of the places that you can see. Yeah. Yeah, so we've really enjoyed that. Yeah. That's really neat. Well, thank you so much, Heather. It was a pleasure talking to you about TAPS. TASPIC. TAPSKIC. There you go. TASPIC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did I do it? Okay. I uh, For somebody that's on a podcast, I have a lot of trouble. Words are hard sometimes for me. <laughs> yeah, so I think my brain sometimes works a lot faster than my mouth. Um, but thank you so much. It was really enlightening and just our audience as well, like just bringing more awareness about the importance of early childhood education, advocating for those policy changes um, that are really going to make a difference in our young people's lives and getting them off on a firm foundation, I think is amazing. It was a pleasure talking to you today. And I am Michelle. And I'm Ashley. And we will talk to you next time. This has been a Two Profesh production. Have a ridiculous, funny, or horrifying story to share? We want to hear it. Email us your side of the story at thelaterpodcast at gmail.com. That's L-A-T-E-R podcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. Until next time, stay safe and stay profesh.